You're listening to a series of historical podcasts from Sandvik on founder Joran Friedrich Joransson and the company he created. My name is Phil Etheridge. And my name is Karina Dahlberg. Episode 1. Joransson and Bessima. The year was 1862 and the American Civil War was raging, with several historic battles taking place and many thousands killed or wounded. Generals Ulysses S. Grant and Robert E. Lee commanded the opposing forces, and Grant would become the 18th president of the once again reunited States of America. World news was pretty much dominated by that war in 1862, but there were several other events of a less bloody nature which took place. And here are a few examples. The first automobile with an internal combustion engine was built in France by Belgian engineer Etienne Lenoir. It took him three hours to drive the first 10 kilometers, basically a walking pace. The new Westminster Bridge was opened in London and painted green to match the seats in the Houses of Parliament very close by. And the Great London Exposition also took place between May and November of that year. The exposition showcased advances made in the Industrial Revolution and attracted more than six million visitors, including the subject of our podcast, Joran Friedrich Joransson, who travelled from Sweden to London for business meetings and to visit the exposition. 1862 was also the year that Joransson founded engineering company Sandvik, which currently has about 43,000 employees with offices and manufacturing in 150 countries. This series of podcasts is planned to comprise three episodes which will cover the lifetime of Consul Joran Frederick Joransson and his achievements. We've sourced the material for these podcasts using a number of publications, both Sandvik's own yearbooks, as well as articles written by relatives. This isn't exactly how I imagined our first podcast together, but Karina Dahlberry, a guide at Sandvik, and I are here at the cemetery by the church in the centre of Sandvik in Sweden. We're close to the Jöransson family grave. In fact, we're so close that I could touch it. Uh, we're also only a stone's throw from the old head office. Karina, can you tell us a bit about what we're seeing here? Well, this is the family grave in Sandviken. Uh, Göran Fredrik Göransson was born in Gävle on the 20th of January 1819. Uh, Gävle is by the coast of the Baltic Sea and about 25 kilometers from Sandviken. Uh, he is buried here together with his wife Betty, his sons and daughters, and their children and grandchildren. Uh, the latest to be buried here was great-great-granddaughter Gunvor Jaransson in 1995. And it's a very beautiful place. Oh, it's lovely. And um, why are the whole family buried here in, in Sandviken? Jaransson spent uh, so much time and he built the city of Sandviken. So I guess that it was so natural for the family to have their graves here. Mm. Right, well, I think we've um, I think we've done enough here. It's a beautiful day, but it's uh, we're in the shade and the mosquitoes love the shade. So let's continue indoors. Sounds great. Jonsson's mm. <laughs> father was the general manager of Daniel Elfstrand and Company and married to the daughter of the owner. 
And what did the Elfstrand company work with, Karina? Elfstrand was a very diverse company. They had all kinds of import exports, shipping, forestry, farming, mining, banking, real estate. In <laughs> fact, they were almost everywhere. Yep. So the Jöransson family was quite eminent in Jävle at that time. Yes, Jöransson's father was a successful businessman, and uh, Jöran Frederick had quite a privileged upbringing. Well, we could call him Frederick, as this was his name in the family. Okay. I suppose he did well in school. Well, not much is known about his schooling, but uh, he learned at a young age that people have equal value, which had a great influence on his way of building and developing the company and the town of Sandviken. As a young boy, he was lively and mischievous, but then when he grew older, he became calm and self-confident, but also apparently had quite a temper. Mm. From what I've read about Frederick, he became quite radical in his approach to business, especially when he started his own company. Well, in 1838, at the age of 19, his father sent him out into the world on a long trip to continue his education and also to give him experience. He traveled all over Europe, mainly in France, Britain, and finally even to the US, where uh, we know that he visited Chicago, which, which was not a major city at the time. Funnily enough, his mother refused to allow him to travel by steamship, which she thought was far too dangerous. So instead, he had to take a sailing ship, which took about two months. In total, the trip took 18 months and prepare Frederick to start working at Elstrand and Company. Yeah, that trip was uh, quite something and probably very unusual back in those days, and probably cost a great deal of money. What happened when he finally came home? He was uh, a very popular figure in Javla on his return. I can imagine. As he was tall, perceived to be good-looking, and very well experienced for his age, he received many invitations to dance and balls, but he always had to start his work at Elfstrand uh, in time by six in the morning. I guess he had a lot of new business ideas after that educational trip. Probably, but he had no standing in the company and most likely he had to keep most of them for himself. He was appointed vice consul to Brazil in 1941, quite soon after his return home. Do you know how that came about? Well, it's said that his father bought him the title so that the two could be differentiated and not confused with one another as they had the same name. He grew very attached to the title Vice Consul and was called Consul Jöransson for the rest of his life. During that period, he also met Betty, his wife-to-be. Well, he met Betty in a quite odd way. He actually got in love with uh, a very handsome girl, very popular girl called Rory, and uh, he wanted to marry her, but she refused. And then she sent her best friend, Betty, with this refusal letter. And that's uh, how he met her. And uh, what was she like, Betty? She was very smart, and she actually dreamed about being a doctor, but that was simply not allowed for society girls at the time. Instead, she had to learn French, embroidery, singing, playing, and painting. 
not not necessarily a bad thing. Well, that may have been fun sometimes, but was probably frustrating too. Otherwise, she was a loyal introvert and reflective as a person. And she never lost her interest in medicine. No, not at all. Uh, many years later, when she and Frederick moved to Hugbo, close to Sandviken, she often treated injured workers. They used to call her the doctress. Mm. I suppose Betty's interest in the local community was uh, quite a great influence on Frederick too. I'm sure it was. Frederick grew up in a business climate, in a wealthy family, and became an entrepreneur and an industry leader. But this quote from later years says a lot about his attitude. He said, a plant like this is not exclusively for the sake of material profits, but should also bring happiness and joy to the many subordinates. Mm. Which is quite some statement coming from a company CEO in the 1800s. I grew up reading Charles Dickens and happiness and joy was not on anybody's agenda in Britain back in those days. Uh, for me, Johansson was like a forerunner for the development of Swedish society in the 1900s. Frederick's father, who, as we've said, was the manager at Elfstrands, died in 1850, and in 1856, Frederick was appointed manager. What happened during that period? A lot of things, both private and in the business. Betty and Frederick married in 1842, and between 1843 and 1853, they had six children, four boys and two girls. And in 1856, Frederick became manager at Elvstrands, and uh, he also uh, acquired Högbo Bruk, uh, a small well-looked-after steel mill, which was started in 1659. And they moved into the old manor house from 1739, where Frederick could live with his family. Uh, Hoberbrook also uh, included a blast furnace at Esken, about 40 kilometers from Hugbo. Frederick traveled a lot in business all over, and one, on one such trip to uh, the UK in 1857, he heard about a new method of producing steel on a large scale. The British inventor Sir Henry Bessemer had unveiled his new process. Elfstrands had huge economic problems at the time. Competition from the railroads was killing off their shipping business, so Frederick didn't have money to spare. But his business associate, Pontus Clearman, who had been living in London since the 1830s, persuaded Frederick, who was known for making bold decisions, to become involved. So Clearman persuaded Frederick to invest in one-fifth of the Bessemer patent for Sweden and Norway, who were in union at that time. Yes, Frederick bought a patent, but it was a huge risk, as the method had never been tried out in practice. Frederick got his people to start experimenting in Esken, and how did that go? Not very well. About every third attempt failed, and nobody could understand why. And at the same time this was going on, there was an international economic crisis, where New York banks suspended payments, and there were corporate failures in Europe, reserves exhausted at the Bank of England, etc. Yes, it was a real mess, and eventually it reached Elfstrands, which was so financially tied up with London and Hamburg that they couldn't be saved. Mm. So, after generations of existence in Gävle, 
they were forced into bankruptcy. But there was still a debt for the patents. Which luckily was paid by the receivers, so the work could continue at Eskem. The total sum was uh, £2,000, which uh, should be more than £100,000 today, or 1.1 million Swedish crowns. So without Elfstrands, all of uh, Frederick's future hang on the patent and the work at Eskin. We should explain what the Bessemer patent is, what it meant to Jöransson and his future. Basically, the Samit company was founded on the back of that patent, so it was a decisive move. At the time, it meant everything, and Frederick had to make it work. They built a so-called Bessemer converter in Esken, and put very simply, this is how it worked. Liquid pig iron is poured into a pear-shaped furnace, which is lying horizontally. The furnace is then raised up, and air is forced in through the bottom under high pressure. Later, pure oxygen was used, but that wasn't available back then. Impurities in the molten steel, mainly silicon and manganese, are burnt off in a massive shower of sparks from the furnace. Finally, the carbon in the steel starts to oxidize, turning it into carbon dioxide, and the flames change color to a bluish tone. Iron becomes steel only at a very specific carbon content, so it's essential that the process stops at exactly the right moment with the right carbon content. They had no instruments to tell them where to st- when to stop the process, so it was mostly watching the colour of the flame and the gut feeling of the blacksmiths that told them when to stop. There was a lot of trial and error, mostly error, actually. When they stopped the process, the steel was tapped off into moulds to cool and solidify to ingots. Stopping too late or too soon, meant the melt was ruined. In the next podcast, we'll talk about the outcome of these trials and what happened next. And that's kind of a cliffhanger, isn't it, Karina? Yes, Phil. Looking forward uh, to meet you on our next part. Yeah, okay. <laughs>